Today we're continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed. Just a reminder, the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the Christian faith. It dates back to the second century, so for almost 2,000 years now, we've been using the Apostles' Creed as a summary, and it's an historic statement of the Christian faith. It covers 12 different aspects of the faith, basic concepts of the Christian faith. Every word, every phrase is very important, biblical. Uh, Virtually all of Christians everywhere recognize the Apostles' Creed as true. It doesn't matter what tradition you're from, if you're Protestant or Roman Catholic or part of the Orthodox tradition, everything in between. Virtually all Christians everywhere acknowledge the Apostles' Creed as a reference point for our faith. And so we're unpacking the Apostles' Creed in, in these weeks, and I hope it's been meaningful to you. Today we're going to uh, launch out from the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I've chosen as our text today from John's Gospel, chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 and then verse 14. If not, we'll project the words on the screen for you. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, would you please... And the Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him the Word was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, The Word became flesh, And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, listen to me. You have heard an important thing today through the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I got on an airplane in Indianapolis. I was headed to Phoenix. It's a few hours in the air. And as I sat down in my assigned seat, I noticed a young man, maybe a college-age guy, maybe a little older, next to me, and we exchanged pleasantries. And it seemed, as we were getting into the air, that he was going to be quiet, which was perfect. Um, I could do my reading and so forth. But shortly thereafter, he turned to me and he said, so, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a minister. He goes, oh, man, his arms flew up. Oh, man, oh. He said, well, listen, do me a favor. He said, whatever you do, don't talk about the church. He said, I have nothing good to say, any good thoughts about the church. So if you don't mind, just leave the subject of the church out of it. I said, okay, dude. Listen, I'm not the one that brought it up. You're the one who asked me what I do. And I said, Uh, You know, by the way, uh, since I am a minister in the church, I've spent most of my adult life trying to make the church a better thing, and and, uh, therefore I have a very very, very narrow window of subjects that I'm actually conversive on, and so you'll understand that that I graze up against the subject very easily, but I won't mention it if you don't talk about the church, but how about this, and at this point I I guess I was just tweaking him, because he tweaked me, so I want to tweak him back. I said, how about this? How about we just not talk about the church at all, but instead, let's talk about Jesus. And to my amazement, my surprise, he looked at me and he said, you know, that's a great idea. I've got some questions. 
I'd like to have answered. So yeah, let's talk about Jesus. And so for three hours, we talked about the life and times of Jesus from his, from his birth to his resurrection. And it was interesting, very fascinating. Now, a lot of times you'll hear preachers tell a story like this and they always have this beautiful, miraculous ending. Most of my stories don't have those kinds of endings. I don't know about you, but uh, my stories usually don't turn out right. But, but it, so I can't report to you that this guy, you know, became a Christian and, and by the end of the flight, you know, he was, you know, ready to preach. None of that was happening. But I do know that the word never returns void and that whatever, wherever it goes out, it comes back with some fruit. And so I believe that God used that time in that young man's life. In the meantime, this is what I took away from that experience. There are lots of people in our world today, postmodern world, post-Christian culture, who are pushing back against the institutional church and about organized religion. Lots of pushback. You hear it. You feel it. Lots of people mocking and scorning and laughing and impugning people of faith. Uh, you know, pushing at us, prodding at us, our values, our ethics, the way we, we value the world is completely wrong and, and shame on us for being so hateful and judgmental. I mean, you feel all of that. Having said that, even though the effect that that kind of culture may have on you, a post-Christian culture may have on you to withdraw and to, and to get quiet and to be reserved and hope nobody notices you and picks on you, Here's what I'd recommend you do. Remind yourself that people in general, while they may have some attitude toward the church, they have a completely different idea about Jesus. I think that most thoughtful people actually care very much about their understanding of and their relationship with Jesus Christ. So could I encourage you, even in the midst of a culture that seems to be adversarial towards the faith, to recognize that people still find the person of Jesus Christ very compelling and that they might probably be open to a conversation about him. So be a faithful witness. Live your life in an authentic way. Share a compelling verbal witness with people as God opens doors of opportunities and do that as a faithful and reliable witness of, of Christ because people really are interested in Jesus after all. Amen? Hope you hear that. Let's get into the creed now. The first phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now, it won't surprise you that most of the major heresies throughout history have come from different groups like the Gnostics and Arians from the ancient church to modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, all of them end up unleashing forces that are destructive to the church and to the faith because they set themselves against the unique supremacy of Jesus Christ. They, they lose sight of, they lose track of just how important Jesus is to the faith. The Arians and modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, teach that Jesus is a created being who does not share in God's eternal nature. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses, the JWs, don't believe that Jesus is God. The Mormons, for example, modern-day Mormons, deny the uniqueness of God. They teach us that all of us can become like God, so there's nothing 
extra special about Jesus. He's just our elder brother, and we're going to all become like him someday. Completely wrong, and not within the context of Orthodox Christianity, and could not adhere to the Apostles' Creed. And then even modern Protestant liberals from mainline denominations in our country right now, including United Methodism, want to portray Jesus as just a great moral example or someone on par with other great religious leaders such as Muhammad or Buddha. But contrast, contrast that idea with what the writer of Hebrews says to us, Hebrews 1 verse 1, where it says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and many ways. But in these last days, our days, God is speaking to us through his son. He is the central focus of our faith. Now, in your outline, you'll see these subsequent lines within the Apostles' Creed that refer to Jesus Christ. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, the very one who created the world now enters the world. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, he is now, he's put on an earth suit, and he's born into the world. This is a, this is a mystery which should lead us to awe and to worship. It's, a, it's an astonishing miracle. Here are the words which I love from Charles Wesley. This was our father, John Wesley's brother, Charles, who wrote over 7,000 hymns in his day. These are the words from one of his hymns, which we sing around Christmas time at Advent. He said, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. So the incarnation implies that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now, this is a miracle. This is a miracle that defies description. Fully God, fully man, not partially one and the other, but fully God and fully man. Some of you will remember the great novel from English literature written by Mark Twain, The Prince and the Pauper. Remember this one? Uh, some of you have read that, I know. The story depicts the life of the son of King Henry VIII, who was heir to the throne of England. And in the story, he meets a poor, ragged, pauper boy on the streets of East London. And the two of them realize that they share a, a remarkable physical resemblance. And so as the, Mark Twain imagines this story, they agree to trade clothes. And so the prince, the future king of England and the heir to the throne, goes out into the streets of London dressed as a pauper and nobody recognized him. They don't, they don't notice who he is. Some spat on him, others pushed him aside, most disregarded him, little knowing that he was the heir to the throne. Now you see the analogy, don't you? Likewise, the eternal Son of God clothed himself in our humanity and walked among us, and most did not recognize him. And so we have Jesus. Now the question, why the virgin birth? Why the virgin birth? Why is this important? Why is it in the creed? Why is it essential to our faith? And it's essential because all of it is rooted in the necessity that Jesus be without sin. Now follow it. There are two ways that we can be declared sinful. One way that we're all in touch with very easily, and that is because we commit sin. Words and deeds and thoughts, 
actions, we commit sin. We are declared sinful because we are sinners. We actually practice the art of sin. And so because we do it, we can be labeled, declared sinners. But there's a second way that we are also declared sinners. And this is from inheriting the nature to sin, the tendency to sin, the inclination to sin, the proclivity to sin from our father Adam in the Garden of Eden. When Adam chose to disobey and rebel against God, sin entered the human condition, and from Adam, we inherited then original sin. We are all born with this inclination, this tendency toward rebellion against God. Now, some people push against it and say, well, I just don't, I don't believe in original sin. I believe human beings are born neutral, say. And then their life goes one way or the other, depending on their environment. Some people think human beings are born naturally good. No, no, I was born good. I'm a good person. I was born good, and I'm still good. But you can prove original sin very easily. The easiest way to prove it is to walk into the two-year-old nursery in any church in America. You can go into our two-year-old nursery this morning, and there's a little angel in there right now. She is beautiful. Her hair has been well-managed. Well she has a little bow in her hair. She has a little dress on. She is angelic. If you look at her, you just, you just, your heart melts because she's precious in every way, and she's carrying a little toy around. And the way that you discover that she has original sin is because, you know, little Susie Q in the nursery uh, she has not been stained by sin. She's only two years old. She is pure as the, as the driven snow. She is absolutely pure of heart. She is a good little girl until little Joey comes over and wants to take the toy that she has in her hand. And when little Joey attempts to take the toy out of her hand, she doubles up her other fist and she punches him right in the nose. And Joey cries because she's got a good right hand and she just cracked him. And now he's running around crying, calling for his mother right now in the nursery. It's happening right now. And you look at that and you, you look at that and you go, where did that come from? Have you ever done that as a parent? Look at, or as a grandparent watching these little ones going around and all of a sudden, pow, hey, whoa, where, what is that? Or, or this fit or this explosion or this selfishness or this greed or this ambition. Where does that come? You're only two. We inherit it from our father, Adam. It's original sin. All of us have a bent toward rebellion, toward God. So now as it relates to Jesus, watch it now. Not only did Jesus have to live a sinless life in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but neither could he be born with Adam's original guilt. And therefore, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Not by a person, not by a man, with original sin that he could pass on, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. The next phrase is this. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, you might note that six of the 12 affirmations in the Apostles' Creed, there are 12 affirmations, one for each of the apostles, therefore the name, Apostles' Creed. Six of the 12, half of all of the affirmations in the Apostles' Creed actually has to do with Jesus himself, reminding us of the centrality of Jesus Christ 
in the earliest teaching and preaching of the apostles. So in Jesus Christ, God himself miraculously stepped into our world and walked among us. We know that his birth was miraculous, and we know that the events surrounding his death were miraculous. So that we have this miraculous, supernatural Jesus Christ in his life. And at the cross, then, we see the convergence of these miracles where the character and nature of God is clearly on display. On one hand, you have the holiness of God on display. The holiness of God, the absolute purity of God, demands a penalty for sin. In order to be in right standing with God, you have to atone for, account for, satisfy the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so sin has to be atoned for. And for ages, the people of God have been sacrificing, in large part, animals, spotless animals, the cleanest animal you could find in order to atone for. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so these sacrifices went on and on and on from generation to generation. And so the holiness of God demanding a penalty for sin is at play at the cross. And we also see the grace of God on display at the cross. And so as these two characteristics of God's nature come together at Calvary, we see the holiness of God, the penalty of sin, the sin being accounted for, and also the grace of God, which actually finds a way to satisfy his grace. And so holiness and grace on display through the person of Jesus Christ. I love this. I love the hymn that Charles Wesley, another of his hymns that he wrote entitled, And Can It Be? Many of you have not sung this hymn. It is one of the most powerful hymns in all of history. And it goes, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Listen to it. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Last, last verse. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Wow. Amazing love. Amazing grace. And we find it in the person of Jesus Christ. Robert Lowry also wrote this powerful hymn on the Mount of Crucifixion. Fountains opened deep and wide from the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Isn't that beautiful? That's exalted language, friends. Fantastic. And so we recognize that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Next phrase, he descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. Now, what's going on here? It's a curious phrase, isn't it? What does that mean? He descended to the dead. What we read from Scripture and what we understand is that there is a place, was a place called Sheol or Hades. And this was a place of the dead. Sheol contained both the righteous and the unrighteous dead. So it was a place of torment in one reference called Gehenna the same place they called the refuge pile across from the Kidron Valley. And so Gehenna was one part of Sheol, and also it is called paradise, which is another part of Sheol. You remember Jesus crucified between two thieves, one on each side, and one thief mocked Jesus. The other asked for Jesus' favor. You remember? And Jesus said to that thief, 
today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. And so here's this reference to a place called Sheol that has both the righteous and unrighteous dead. And apparently now, Jesus went there. He descended to the dead. So what did he do once he got there? Because after all, where did the righteous dead and unrighteous dead go before the time of Jesus? Before full redemption was understood, before the full plan of salvation was revealed. What happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What happened to Moses and the prophets and the righteous men and women who lived before Christ? They've assembled themselves in this place called Sheol. Jesus now, after he dies, descends to this place. So what does he do? Well, the, the scripture teaches us what he does. The first thing he does is he went there to proclaim the gospel to people throughout time who were awaiting their full deliverance. Think about the prophet Isaiah. He's in Sheol. He's waiting. He had actually prophesied about a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah. But he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he talked about a suffering servant. So he, he, he had uh, incomplete revelation and understanding of what the full plan of salvation would be. Think about King David who wrote Psalms. Psalms 22 and 23 and 24, they, they, they depict, actually depict the scene of the crucifixion. Psalm 22 is a song about a man being crucified. This was before crucifixion was even practiced or understood or, or entered the minds of people. So David, you know, writes this, this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sends it down to the worship team for, to sing on Sunday. He doesn't even know what it means. And so he dies still in his confusion, longing, waiting, trying to understand God's ultimate plan of redemption for his people. So now Jesus descends to Sheol, the place of the dead, and he proclaims the gospel. Jesus preaches about what he's just done on Calvary and reveals the full plan of salvation to the righteous dead and unrighteous. And it's an amazing moment. I can, I can imagine that this, this could have been an explosive celebration. Everyone just go, now we get it. Now we understand. And they realize that they have been redeemed by the work, ultimate work of Jesus Christ. Now here's the second thing he did. Jesus went there to express his full victory over Satan and the principalities and powers of evil. Listen to what Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says. It says, he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now imagine this. In this setting, as Jesus has descended to the, to the place of the dead, now Jesus walks up, in my imagination I can see this, Jesus walks up to the devil himself, Satan, our adversary, and he takes from him the keys to, of death, hell, and the grave. Give me that. And takes possession, takes authority over death and hell and the grave. No longer do we fear, no longer do we dread what the devil can do to us because Jesus has overcome on our behalf. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? It's beautiful. It's a, it's a significant thing. Then the third thing that Jesus did is he went there to unite with the saints and to lead them in his glorious ascension. Ephesians 4.8 says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So in other words, he went there to preach the gospel, to snatch away the authority of death, hell, and the grave from the enemy, 
And then to lead in the ascension, it says he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men, gave awards, rewards to men. It's a powerful thing, this phrase, he descended to the dead. Next phrase, on the third day he rose again. Now the resurrection, of course, is the public demonstration of God's victory over sin and death and hell. And to believe in Jesus doesn't simply mean that we believe he was a good guy, that he lived, that he had uh, these towering ethical teachings, that he was a worker of miracles. If you merely believe that, listen to me, if you merely believe that, then you're in the same company with most Muslims, most Hindus, most Buddhists who believe all these things about Jesus too. That he was a great man, he taught lofty things, he worked miracles. Muslims believe that. Hindus believe it. Buddhists believe it. The distinctive of the Christian faith is that we believe that Jesus is the risen Lord. The resurrection is a public testimony that Jesus has defeated death and hell and the grave. So the resurrection is what makes Christianity unique among all of the religions. Buddha, I'll remind you, is still in the grave. Confucius is still dead. Muhammad is still in his tomb. Jesus is the risen Lord. And that's where the amen goes in the sermon. So you can go ahead and say amen to that. Jesus is alive and risen from the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Then the next phrase, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, here's a question for you. What's he up to? What's he doing? He ascended to heaven, all right? Sat down in the seat of authority, power, and dominion. He has power, authority, and dominion. What's he doing? What's he up to? We know what he's up to. The scripture teaches us. First of all, he's waiting for the culmination of his work to be fully known. This is his prophetic role. Jesus said in a prophetic way, and this gospel, listen to me. This go- Are you listening? This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Now, do you hear his prophetic voice? This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. Only then will the end come. This is his prophetic voice. We, we, we learn in, in Philippians chapter 2 that the culmination of all things, when everybody's assembled, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Now, we know that's the culmination. But not until everyone has had a chance to hear. Everyone in the design of God has had the chance. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. We know that there are people in Cape Coral, Florida, who are yet to hear the hopeful message of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're planning a church there, so that more can hear. There are still people in Muncie, Delaware County, who need to hear the hopeful message of Jesus Christ. And so we continue to do our work. The job is not finished. That's why we went to Kazakhstan and remain in Kazakhstan with a viable witness of the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ and others around the church going to the far corners of the world to offer hope in Jesus Christ. And it's not the end yet because the last person in the last village, in the last town, in the last state, in the last country is yet to hear this hopeful message. But one of these days, 
The last person living in that hut, living in that house, living in that village, living in that state, living in that country is going to hear the hopeful message of Jesus. And that will be the completion of the work. And he's coming again. And God alone knows the time of his coming. So he's waiting. What else is he doing? He's interceding. How do you know? Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's in his prophetic role waiting for the culmination of all things. He is in his priestly role actually interceding for you and me. Now listen, here's what the Bible teaches. That Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for us, making intercession. He ever lives to make intercession. Listen to me. I believe that Jesus Christ will name your name in prayer before the Father today. Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows your need. Jesus knows your story. He knows your journey. He understands your pain. He understands your disappointment. He understands your suffering. He understands the injustice, the unfairness, the abuse. He knows your story, every detail of it. And he's praying for you. Heavenly Father, please, please bless my dear sister. And he names your name. Please, please help my, my brother. And he names your name. What is Jesus doing? He's praying. He's praying for us. He's praying for you. He's, his prayers, the prayers of Jesus himself are rising up before the Father. Does that encourage anybody here but me? That encourages me. That gives me some hope. And then finally, one th other thing he's doing, he's reigning. He's at the right hand of God. It's his kingly role. Mark 16, 19 says, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So he's waiting He's interceding and he's reigning until the final moment. And so that's what we know and that's what we believe. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Last phrase. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now here we acknowledge God's judgment. He shall come to judge the living, and the dead. We acknowledge his judgment against the wicked. His sovereign decree is to set all things right that have been skewed by sin, distorted by sin, and by evil. God's righteous judgment is something that is absolutely certain. And not only is it certain, but it should give us great comfort and great peace because everything crooked is going to be made straight Everything wrong is going to be made right. Justice is going to roll down like the waters. And we are, we are going to live in a place that is free of all of these oppressions. Jesus is coming again. It's in, the, it's in the text. It's in the phrase. It's in the creed. He will come. There are a lot of people in our world today for centuries have said, yeah, yeah, Jesus has promised to come. Where is, he, where is his coming? You promise he's coming, but he's not here. You said he's going to come again, but he hasn't come. He's not coming. What are you, are you crazy? Are you stupid? Are you naive? 
Jesus isn't coming again. If he was coming again, he'd already come. Come on, wink, wink. And so we have people lampooning people of faith and the predictions of Jesus coming. And they think it's funny and they scoff at it and they laugh at it. But I'll just remind you, the day that Jesus ascended off the Mount of Olives, angels came around the apostles that day. They were all looking up at the sky as Jesus is ascending. And they said, why are you looking up in the sky? Don't you know the same one that's ascending will also descend one day and set foot on this same mount. And friends, there's one thing you can count on. Jesus is coming again. He's coming. He's coming literally. He's coming physically. He's coming personally. Jesus is coming again. The great reformer Martin Luther said we ought to live our lives as if Jesus died yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is coming tomorrow. And that's the way we should live. Jesus is coming. And so the early church prayed, Maranatha, come quickly. And might we say the same prayer? Come, Lord. Come anytime. Come quickly. We're ready for you. Indeed. So Jesus will come personally and physically. Then also from this phrase, we learn this, that Jesus will judge all sin. He will judge all sin. Did you know that every sin that you have ever committed or ever will commit in word or thought or deed is being recorded? Apparently there's a book with the sins of every human being who's ever lived. How many of you think that may be a big book? That's got to be a big one. That's a big hard drive right there. He's going to need the cloud to store all that information. All the sins of every person. Think about that. Your sins will be revealed. Every sin that you've done out loud, up front, will be revealed. Every hidden sin. Every secret sin. Every sin done in private. Every thought. Every word. Every deed will be revealed. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? Isn't that sobering? That should get our attention. But I've got some good news for you. Not only will sin be judged, but those faithful ones, those righteous ones, their faith will be vindicated. Because apparently there's another book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. One book reveals all sin, but in the Lamb's Book of Life, there's actually the names written there in blood of everyone who accepted and received for themselves the gift of life and forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a depiction of this scene in the Revelation. You can go there and read it. And it says that there will be people there from every language and tribe and nation and that there will be angels there and created beings there, too numerous to count, multitudes and multitudes of people and, and beings assembled. And, and then a great hush is going to come over this immense crowd, too great to number, complete silence, because it occurs to everyone that there is no one found worthy to break the seals on the most important book in all the universe. The names of those who have been revealed, redeemed. And so silence will come over all of the heavens. You'll be there and I'll be there. And then suddenly an angel will announce, wait, 
one has been found worthy to break the seals and open the book. One has been found worthy. The one who was dead but is now alive. The one slain for the sins of the world is now among us and available. He and he alone is worthy to break the, soul, the, the, the seals on this scroll. And Jesus will then emerge and he'll break all of the seven seals off this book and he will open the Lamb's book of life. And all of us whose names have been written there will realize, wow. And the Bible says that we will all sing a new song. And it goes something like this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and blessing and power and might and dominion. Worthy is the Lamb. And we will sing. And we will rejoice and we will worship. For once we were lost and undone, but now our names have been found written in the book. Is your name in the book? Is your name in the book? The Lamb's book of life? If your name's not in the book, drive very carefully home today. Be very careful tomorrow. Because you, you don't want to die in your sins. Don't die in your sins. Because all that's left is to await the judgment, which is coming. You want to die with hope that your name is found written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow. Jesus will come, he will judge, and he will grant righteous rewards. Jesus said that everyone's works is going to be tested by fire. All the stuff you did for Jesus, that will remain. That's like gold and silver. The stuff you did for yourself, the stuff you did selfishly, the stuff you did casually, the stuff that didn't matter, that's all going to be burned away. No reward for that. Jesus said there are going to be some people who are going to be saved, who get to heaven, but nothing else. <laughs> there are going to be folks, you, you'll notice, folks, some folks will come stumbling into heaven, smoldering. Oh, shoot. Wow. Dang it. Man, that was close. <laughs> Jesus said they'll be saved, though by fire. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, his only son, according to the scripture, the entire Old Testament is pointing to and preparing for the coming of the Lord. He fulfills the Old Testament law. He fulfills the Jewish priesthood, the sacrificial system. He fully embodies God's righteousness. All the prophets point to Jesus. Indeed, all of Revelation point to Jesus Christ simply because he is uniquely God's only son. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Finally, we recognize the affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Five times we find in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as God. Other times by actions and prerogatives, we find the implication of Jesus' divinity. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, what is his declaration? 
Guy's been dead four days. He tells Lazarus to resuscitate and get back up. His comment in response to that is, I am the resurrection and the life. That's something that a God would do. In fact, when you read the Gospels, there's no indication that Jesus ever preached a funeral. For us preacher types, we always looked at Jesus as our model for ministry. It breaks down completely when it comes to funerals. Because every time Jesus ran into a dead person, the dead person got back up. Goes to the graveyard, people are dead, they get back up. He, he happens to be going along a funeral procession one day. You can imagine, you know, they're going down a street, you know, the lights are on, the whole thing, and they're dragging this poor widow's son, her only son, and she's devastated. She's hopeless, helpless, and in despair. And so Jesus just grabs the kid out of the casket, stands him up, gives him back to her, his mother. Completely messes up the whole funeral. How can you have a decent funeral around this guy? It's impossible. When Jesus forgives sins, even his opponents remark in Mark 2, who can forgive sins except God alone? Shazam. When Jesus receives worship, it's a powerful pointer to his deity. When he declares that he was the Father before the, with the Father before the foundation of the world, it's an indication. When he reminds us that he has special prerogative to judge the entire world, John chapter 5, it's an indication of his deity. When Jesus announces that he has all authority and power, it clearly indicates his deity, Matthew 28. When Jesus calmed the wind and waves from a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples, the Bible says, were overcome with awe. Really? You think so? Yeah, and they ask one another, who the heck is this guy? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He's God. That's who he is. Calming the violent storms, casting out demons, making the lame to walk, the blind to see, even the dead getting back to life. These are miracles that people struggle with. They, they doubt whether the, that, that they actually happen. But let me ask you this question. If God Almighty actually came to the earth and put on an earth suit, what kind of stuff might he be involved in when he hangs around people who are suffering and in darkness and in death? The very things that Jesus did are the very things you would expect a God to do. So look on the screen with me at Colossians 1.16. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Look at Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Look at Colossians 1.16. For God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, in him. Look at Colossians, finally, chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord.